Good morning, everybody. Hey, uh, Kingsway, can you say it with me? A place where the lost and broken are transformed by the love of Christ. And hopefully you have your cheat sheet up now. Hey, I'm really glad to be with you. If you're visiting with us today, that's our hope. That's our goal. This is what we're shooting for. We want to become this. We're working hard. We've got places to grow in, ways to get better. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. We're going through a series called Be Bold, Be Bold, because safe is boring. And I told you early in the series that if you were here or could listen online to at least five out of seven of these messages, we would give you a chance to become a member without taking our Discover Belonging class. So if that's true for you, we will give you basically the next three or so weeks to be able to let us know that. So and out here and also on our app and on our website, everywhere we could digitally put it out, um, you'll find a little card that looks a little bit like this on the back. I don't know how you can see that here. I think that's the camera that's looking at me. And uh, it's just got some boxes on there that says, yes, I want to become a member. We'll you know, ask some basic questions, name, contact, email. It'll ask you some questions about, have you ever given your life to Christ? Have you ever been immersed before? Our bylaws literally state every person becoming a member must be immersed. So you maybe you were sprinkled or you've, you believe in Jesus, but you've never taken that step. We invite you to take that step. We would love to talk to you about what that means. And if you've done five out of seven of these messages, I'll tell you which five I thought were the best five, then you can, uh, you can do this. And we're only going to leave this up for three weeks. So after this, you got to go through Discover Belonging. I want to encourage you to pray about it, think about it. So there you go. You can get that out at this table. Or again, it's on the app and on the website. So today we wrap up our series. We've been studying the book of Acts. And today we're not really living in a chapter, we're living in a story. And we're taking a look at a story of a particular man. I want to introduce you to that man, and then we're going to come back and talk through what it means. So first, let's meet this man. It comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 36. And the man's name is Joseph. Here we go. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. So there's a dude, his name is Joseph, and the apostles, the leaders of the church, nicknamed him Barnabas, and all Barnabas means is son of encouragement. So that'd be like, whatever your favorite pet name for me is, some of you aren't allowed to share it out loud. Maybe it's like, you know, the best pastor ever. Okay, that wasn't funny, apparently. <laughs> my wife might say, my, my hubby, my hottie, she sometimes calls me. Um, whatever it is, it'd be like, this is your nickname. This is what we're calling you. We're no longer calling you Joseph. That's the name your parents gave you. We're now calling you son of encouragement. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, hi, you are a pastor of encouragement. Like, that's my job title. And how did he get that job title? Well, Barnabas was that. That's his life. That's his character. It's who he was. And we find out in that same chapter, he's a generous dude. He just gives stuff away. In fact, he literally goes and sells some land and property and stuff his parents gave to him, inheritance, and he sold it and brought the money to the apostles, said, use this to bless people however you want. That's encouragement. But if you keep reading through Acts, there comes a point where he kind of drops off in between basically Acts chapter 4 and roughly Acts chapter 15 or 16. We get his story, and then that's kind of the end of it. We don't learn much more about him anywhere else. That's it. That's his snippet. And what we see in his life over and over and over again is that he encourages others by building them up, pouring into them, uh, raising up their leadership, caring for people who have fallen. And so he gets this title, Son of Encouragement. And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder, if somebody were really honestly to give you a title, what would the title you would be given be? Now think about that for a minute. 
The people around you, what would they nickname you? Might it be, oh, wise one, or loving and caring, kind, considerate, great leader, son or daughter of encouragement? Now, the reality I realize is this. If you're visiting with us today, um, lots of this message is probably going to go over your head because there's a whole bunch of God, Jesus, Bible background that sets up what I'm talking about today. And if I am do any decent job at all, you'll still walk away with a clear understanding of the direction I'm heading, even though some of it won't make sense. And if you've been a believer for any length of time, what I'm about to give you is a blueprint for how Jesus intends for believers to act and to live. Now, here's the problem with today's message. It's not like a topic on marriage. Which we're going to start right after Easter. We're going to start Songs of Solomon. And we're going to look for single people. We're going to look at it for people who are dating. We're going to look at it for people who are just recently married and people who have a long-term marriage. We're going to look at all of it as we progress through the book. And everybody, every Sunday is going to go, wow, that was so helpful. I wish I would have known that 10 years ago. Man, I know I'm going to need that in 10 years. But the one today, the one we're talking about today, there's some of you are going to sit here and go, who cares? I don't need to know that today. And it's a little bit like this. See, I, grew, I lived in Colorado for 10 years. And when I moved there, I loved to hike. I would go into all the times into the small, tiny hills of Ohio, in northeast Ohio, where I grew up. And that's not at all the same thing. So when I got to Colorado, I found out about something called altitude sickness. And that you literally run out of breath no matter how good a shape you're in. This is why NFL players are sucking oxygen during the football games on the sidelines. I also learned about these things called bears <laughs> and lions. And tigers, okay, there weren't any tigers, but you know, you got to finish the sequence. Wizard of Oz, anybody? Lions, tigers? Okay, anyway. So when I got there, I went to go to the mountains. I went to the mountains. My wife was terrified. She's like, you don't know what you're doing. I'm like, it's the mountains. How hard could it be? Well, there's trails and there's paths. And by the way, you can get lost really easy up there. So when I came back down the mountain, I decided I need to learn some things. So I started talking to people and reading books. I got those survival handbook thing and read through it. And I read articles. I read all this stuff. And I learned some information. And I just want to share this information with you real quick because this may or may not help you. But here you go. If you're ever in the mountains in Colorado, you probably won't run into a grizzly bear. They don't live there. But if by chance you're far enough north and they come far enough south that you happen to, and a grizzly bear comes up on you, play dead. Don't run. Don't fight back. It's the best thing you can do. Simply play dead. Because they like the chase and they get very agitated very easily. You want to stay docile and passive. However, if you come up on a black bear, which is extremely likely in the Colorado Rocky Mountains, you want to do the exact opposite. They are lazy. So if you play dead, you just became a free meal. This is extremely important information that you can tell the difference. Now, one is about six foot eight and massive. The other one tends to be small, still far bigger than all of you. And if you ever come up upon this bear, you do not want to lay down. He will think you are a berry on the ground, and he will eat you. And so what you want to do if you see a brown bear or a black bear, you want to raise your hands up and make yourself look bigger than you are. By the way, this never goes well if you're five foot seven and a half. And everybody in the room who's under six feet tall knows that half an inch means a lot. So a five foot seven and a half, you can raise your arms up, but you just don't look real big. So what you need to do is you need to grab a, a big branch or something that's right there on the side of the road and raise it up over your head, appearing taller than you are. Now, a little bit of piece of information you won't find in survival websites and handbooks. It's just something I learned along the way is bring a container, excuse me, of fresh honey. It has to be fresh. Can't be crystallizing at all. Fresh honey. As long as somebody else is with you, because worst case scenario, you douse them and run. It's a little piece of information. They don't need to know what's in there. Now, here's the other one. If you come up on a mountain lion, if you come up on a mountain lion, 
It's kind of the opposite of this as well. Because see, mountain lions, there's a good chance if you come up on one, they've already known you were there for about the last three miles of your hike. And they've been tracking you. Mountain lions are extremely good at hiding off to the sides. In fact, there are actually pictures all around Colorado of people getting photos up in the mountains, and there's a mountain lion in the background hiding in the bush. And they had no idea, exactly. And what will happen is they've been following you and waiting for the perfect moment to jump out and attack your neck. This is not going to go well for you. You need to be ready to fight, possibly have some sort of knife. Some of you who are gun lovers, I know. Or whatever it is, something on you where you can fight back and fight back immediately. I went out and got a backpack that at least came up a little bit because they're going to go for your neck to protect my neck. Now, if a mountain lion jumps on you, you want to grab a rock and start smashing it in the head and the eyeball as best you can. And so in hopes you don't become prey, pray. Do <laughs> you like what I did there? Anybody? All right. Anyway, you're like, why in the world do we ever need to know this? You probably don't. But if you're ever in the mountains and you need it, aren't you glad I told you? That's going to be today's message. See, if you're ever in a situation where you need what I'm about to say, I want you to be able to dig down deep and go, hey, I learned something about that once. Let's talk about the son of encouragement. Everybody in here wants to leave a legacy, right? Someday when you talk about that dash between your birthday and your last day, you want people to be able to talk about that dash in glowing terms. I'm telling you, I've been to terrible, terrible funerals where people get up and the best that they could tell about the person who has just passed is tragic and immoral and evil and really not funny. And you think to yourself, as people are getting up sometimes to an open mic and they're telling these stories, you think to yourself, is that all we got? Is that it? Their worst moments... Because it was funny and they made a joke about it is what we're sharing. But then there's other funerals I've been to, and they are amazing. And you could tell, you can tell the difference between a man and a woman who has spent their life pouring into other people and the ones who spent their life pouring into themselves. And that's the difference. And at those funerals, people get up, and they just can't stop telling stories. In fact, some of us who aren't intimately connected to them in those ways sometimes sit there, and we're not going to tell anybody we actually think this, but here's what we actually think. We're like, this is awesome for like the first five minutes. Then the next 20 minutes, like, this is amazing. They're great. And about 25 minutes, and you're like, okay, seriously, how many people has this person touched? Like, I have a lunch appointment after this. I'm hungry. My stomach is growling. I want to dishonor the person. But there's a part of you that feels that tension because they've done such an amazing job of living their lives that everybody wants to share. And that's the story I want for you. That's Barnabas' story. So when the day comes that your dash finally gets filled in and the last date is finally put on your tombstone, I want everybody to gather at your moment, at your funeral, and be able to say, this person lived an awesome life. Here's how they, here's how they empowered me. Here's how they equipped me. Here's how they poured into me. Here's how they blessed me. And the only way you're going to get there, the only way you're going to get there is with unbelievable intentionality. You don't stumble upon a good life. You choose to live a good life. Now, here at Kingsway, here's how we say this. Here at Kingsway, we have a phrase to kind of help guide us in this. And we say this. We believe in multiplication, multiplication. And that is this. Disciples making disciples who make disciples. That's what we're going for here. So what that means is, as we're going to look at this, every single one of us is pouring into other people what God has already poured into us. In fact, that's a great question to ask yourself. 
Who are you teaching what others have taught you? Or who are you teaching what Christ has taught you? If you aren't ready to answer that question, then on that last day, on that last day, there's not going to be a great story to tell. But if you can answer this question, and look, it's okay to say it's my kids. It's okay to say it's my spouse. It's okay to say it's people in my life group or in my neighborhood or my grandkids or whatever it is. But if you don't know the answer to this question, where am I teaching or where am I pouring into others what Christ has poured into me through others? And if you're not ready to answer that, you're going to get to that day with a lot of regret. Or at least everybody else will as they're trying to share stories about you. So here we go. Let's take a look now. How do we actually get to the life we want to get to? How do we actually live the life we want to live? Let's take a look at, again at this guy named Barnabas. So in Acts chapter 4, we meet Barnabas, son of encouragement. What happens next over the next few chapters is we get to a guy, and his name is Saul. We talked about him last week if you were here. Saul later changes his name to Paul. And I just want to be really, really clear on the, that because it's going to refer to both of them. Saul, Paul, same dude. Okay, so Saul comes to faith in Jesus. What you need to know about Saul is he's a terrorist. He hates Christians, he's killing Christians, he's persecuting Christians because he hates them. However, Jesus comes to Saul and he changes his life. Bright light shines from heaven, voice speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul ends up going into Damascus where he was going to arrest Christians and instead he becomes a Christian. And God sends a guy named Ananias, who's another great story in here, but we're going to leave him aside for now. And he shares the gospel with Saul. Saul accepts Jesus, gets baptized, and immediately starts preaching the gospel there in Damascus. But things get hard. In fact, there's a plot now among some of Saul's old cronies who are not Christians to kill Saul. And so they get Saul out of town and try to get him on to somewhere safe. Now, that's where we stopped last week. In Acts chapter 9, verse 25, here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible isn't worried about telling the story the way we in American uh, 20, whatever, 21st century today would tell a story. So between Acts 9, 25 and Acts 9, 26, it's a little Bible trivia for you. You may not know this. There are three years between those two sentences. Three years. Now you may say, how do you know that? Well, because <clears throat> I have an original signed copy. I do not really have that. I bought it on eBay. You think it's real? Anyway, the reason I know that is if you go to Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells us the story. So all you have to do is read the two books and go, oh, look, this is how it literally unfolded. So here's on a timeline. Some of you, I know you hated history. You'll hate this too. Stick with me. It won't be long. In Acts 30, or sorry, in 33 AD, Saul comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And then in Psalm 33 AD, Saul disappears into kind of the Arabian nights. He literally goes out into the desert. And what he tells us in Galatians 1 is he spends those three years with Jesus. We don't know exactly what that means. We believe it means Jesus may have literally appeared to him or come to him in a vision. We don't know. Saul doesn't give us anything more than that. All we know is for three years, he was just taught by Jesus. But think about this for a minute. Here's Saul. He's a new convert, and he disappears for three years, getting training. Now, when Saul comes out of hiding, we find him in Jerusalem. This is now Acts 9, verse 26, and nobody trusts the dude. His dash has not been good. He has killed Christians, overseen killing Christians, and tried to put Christians in prison. So when he shows up at the church, everybody goes, don't trust that guy. In fact, they think it's part of a plot. And it's a great idea, really. I mean, if you really want to take down the whole church, don't just persecute the church, become one of them. Ha ha. Then when they trust you, just get them all in one place and like round them up like cattle. Except that's not really what's going on. Now, I want you to see what happens here. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, again, three years later, he tried to meet with the believers. They were all afraid of him. 
They did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. Did you get what just happened? Saul shows up at Jerusalem and nobody wants to even talk to the guy or associate with the guy. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, shows up and says, I trust this man. Now Barnabas is a leader in the church. So what do you think everybody else started to do? They started to trust Saul. Why? Because one leader vouched for another leader. Now let me just take you back in your own life for a second. Has there ever been a person in your life who came alongside you at a pivotal moment and came to you and said, there's something special about you? Maybe literally they used these four letters, these four letters, ready? The letter I, C, N, you. I see in you something special. And I see in you something unique. I see in you something that you don't even yet see in yourself. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? Now, maybe they didn't use that exact phrase. I remember my youth minister coming to me when I was a young kid, and he said, Matt, I can't be present in our high school classroom, and our teacher has just stepped away. I'm asking you and another gentleman to teach this class on Sunday morning. I was like 17. He's like, what? He said, I see in you something. I had another youth minister. I remember I was at, I've told the story before, but I was at a church camp, and I was being difficult. I was uh, being bullheaded, as my dad would say. Uh, that was my nickname instead of son of encouragement growing up. It was bullhead. And um, I remember I was being difficult at this camp because we were playing some dumb game that I didn't want to play. And I remember this youth minister who was running the game. He wasn't my youth minister. He came up to me and said, Matt, if you go play this game and act like you're excited, every single kid here will play this game and act like they're excited. Would you please just help me out? You know what he was saying? He didn't actually use the words. He was saying, I see in you leadership you don't see. I went out with a different attitude. I played the game. And guess what? Everybody had fun that day. It was these people coming into my life. And I could just go on and on and on and on and on. It took people coming into my life and saying, man, I see in you. I see in you something you don't see. Step up. Probably the best example I could give, I actually kind of had this long list in my head, like I could tell this story, this story, this story. There's one particular person I'm really excited about. His name is Alan Algram. Alan Algram was my pastor for 10 years at my last church. And um, I remember when I went there, I was just an intern. In fact, that was the phrase. That was my title. People would use it all the time. In fact, I had just gotten a new office. They'd renovated it. And because of my job, it made sense to be placed in a certain office. It was really nice and new. And this other guy had a smaller office. And he'd been there like 25 years. And I remember him saying, you're just an intern. How'd you get this office? And that was my title, just an intern. And I remember, I remember my pastor now coming to me. And I remember him saying, Matt, we want you to take this new job, this new opportunity because we see in you something else. I remember when the guy who was over me left and he went to work for an organization called CIY. Some of you know about it. I remember them coming to me and saying, I see in you something you don't yet see. We want you to now lead the team. And I remember when we were launching a second campus, I remember my pastor coming to me and saying, we want you to be the campus pastor over the second campus because we see in you more than you currently see in yourself. And I'll never forget all those different moments where he spoke into my life in different ways. In fact, this past week, I was struggling with a really big, intense ministry 
issue, which I'll tell the story next week. And guess who the first person I called was? I texted him and said, I need help and I need it now. And he wasn't available now, and so I had to trust the Holy Spirit. And later he called me to say, hey, I was, I was in the mountains. I'm like, he's rubbing it in. I hope you saw a bear. And, um, <laughs> and he, said, uh, he said, I'm sorry, what do you need? We talked for about an hour. Well, he just poured into me wisdom, years and years and years of ministry experience. And see, here's the thing. Some of you are sitting there right now, you're like, I don't need, what is this, how is this ever going to help me? And what you don't know, what you don't know is that there is unbelievable potential in you, but you just need somebody to come alongside you and say, I see in you more than you see in yourself. I see in you the ability to be great. I see in you something that God is doing. And part of the problem for some of you is you're so puffed up and arrogant and full of yourself, you already see in you and you just think everybody else needs to catch up. And what you don't know, what you don't know is God humbles the proud but he lifts up the humble. So as soon as you humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, he will do the lifting up. And when you've humbled yourself, all of a sudden you're okay with somebody else speaking into your life. And you don't have to go around proving yourself. You don't have to go around knowing at all. You can simply take the next step and allow God to open doors that you're trying to force open and he keeps holding shut. And this is a message God keeps speaking to me over the last couple of years. And it's hard. But it's God's way. So what happens next? Well, the very next verse, take a look. Verse 28. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Whoa, he did what? He stayed with the apostles? This guy goes from zero to hero overnight. He's all of a sudden the guy that everybody wants an autograph from. And we're three years in. Nobody trusts him. Barnabas speaks up, and he's not just now trusted. He's with the top echelon of church leadership, which is a really big deal. Why? Because one man said, I see in you something that God is doing. I see in this man. I know it. I can vouch for it. I'll put my name on the line behind this person. That's huge. Now, if you go back to read Galatians chapter 1, Paul fills in some blanks here. In Galatians 1, he tells us that he actually spent two weeks with Peter. In fact, he didn't really meet any other apostle except for James, the half-brother of Jesus. So he spent two weeks really with Peter, the guy, being mentored one-on-one because Barnabas opened a door for him. Look at verse 29. It says, he, Paul, debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. That's a bad day. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. That is 36 AD. This happens. Now he goes home. And this is what we call the silent years of Paul. We don't know what happened. See, Galatians 1, he told us he spent three years in the desert with Jesus. Right now we have four years, and we don't know what happens in the next four years. Saul literally disappears off the church history map. He goes home. And I might just make a side point. That's often what happens when we run away and go home. I'll leave it at that. Home is safe. 
Home is comfortable. Home is rarely where God does his greatest work. Sometimes it takes us getting out of home. And God's going to force the issue because it's around 40 or so A.D. I know some of you don't care about these dates, but it's around 40 or so A.D. that God reveals there's going to be a great famine coming. And uh, actually, I'm sorry, that'd be around 40, 41, 42 A.D. And what happens is the gospel starts to go out and spread. Persecution is intense. You remember when Stephen was killed, the believers left Jerusalem and went out. Well, they went out to certain towns, and we find ourselves in Antioch, and the gospel's blowing up in Antioch. And so the apostles come to a guy named Barnabas. You've heard of him. And they say, Barnabas, we need somebody to go to Antioch. The church is blowing up. There's a, there's a huge mega church down there that's growing. And we need you to go down there and leave that church. And Barnabas does. And I want you to look at this. Now we're into Acts chapter 11, verse 22. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy. And he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit, strong in the faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Now, stop here for a second. Here we learn about this guy named Barnabas again, and Luke, who wrote this book, is clear to let us know this is a good leader. He's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's strong in the faith, and because he's a good leader, many people are brought to the Lord. We've already got a mega church. It just keeps growing under his leadership. In fact, I would suggest, again, something happens between this verse and the next verse. Here's what I think happens, even though we don't know for sure. What I think happens is Barnabas realizes that the thing has outgrown his capacity, that Barnabas is now the lid. And if you don't know this, it's just a leadership rule. At some point, you will create lids in every organization and in every relationship and in every leadership situation. And if you're not careful, you will be the lid. You'll be the thing holding something back from growing. And Barnabas is no fool. He sees all that God is doing and he knows, I got to get out of the way. I got to do more because I'm keeping this thing. I can't manage all these people. I can't serve all these people. So what do I do? Let's take a look at the next verse. Verse 25. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. Well, that's a loaded verse, isn't it? I mean, if you look into the story, it's so easy and obvious. Barnabas is looking for a co-leader. He's going to grab someone who could come alongside him and lead the church. Look at the next thing it says, verse 26. When he found him... He brought him back to Antioch, and both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians, which technically all that word means is little Christs. It was actually a mocking term, we believe. People started going, you guys are nothing but a bunch of little Christs. And they went, hey, you know what? We are. And no longer are they just called people of the way or followers or disciples. Now they call themselves Christians. So what happens next? Well, God reveals this great famine occurs. So Paul, uh, Barnabas and Paul decide to gather up funds to help with this great famine that's happening in Jerusalem. And they go on to Jerusalem. And it's about 46 A.D., so realize we're roughly 10 years beyond. Now, this is huge. I want to show you this in Acts chapter 13, because what happens is God now takes these two men along with some other men, and he begins to plant in them a dream for what God wants to do in them together. They are partners in ministry. Take a look. Acts chapter 13. I recommend you read all of it sometime, but here's pick up a verse 2. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, 
the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Now, did you catch what happened in verse 2? Did you catch it? Let me show it to you again. Look at verse 2. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so we got a bunch of men, Acts 1 and 2, or uh, 13, 1 and 2, and the Holy Spirit said, dedicate who? Barnabas and Saul. What's the order of the names? Barnabas first, Saul second, for the special work. I'm not going to show this to you. I, I, I hope you'll trust me and just look it up for yourself. We get to chapter 14, and guess what order their names are in? It's no longer Barnabas and Saul. It's now Paul and Barnabas. You think that's an accident, like Luke's just using them synonymously? No. What we learn between Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14 is that Barnabas is a good leader. He's even a great leader. But Barnabas realizes that Paul is even a better leader. And that what happens is, as they're doing the work that they're doing, God is blessing Paul's work for a very specific and unique purpose. And Barnabas is okay with stepping back and allowing Paul to go forward. See, here as believers, and I realize some of you aren't, but stick with me. Here as believers, Jesus said, if you're going to lead like me, then you're going to have to be like me. That means putting others above yourself. You want to lead like me, he says, don't lead like the world leads. And when the world leads, it seeks power, it seeks glory, it seeks hoarding, it seeks stuff. Don't be like that. Flip the whole model upside down. You want to be great, become the least. You want to do the most, then do it by serving other people. Don't worry about what you get out of it. Worry about how others are lifted up. I love the way Andy Stanley says this. He says, when it dawns on you that you have all the power in the room. All right, you're in that leadership position. You're Barnabas. What do you do when it dawns on you? What do you do? You use what you have been given to leverage other people and lift them up. That's exactly what Barnabas does with this guy named Paul. And from here on out, Paul becomes the more important figure. Take a look, Acts chapter 13. Let's read the rest of what it says here. Verse, th- verse 4. So Barnabas and Saul, notice the order, were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. And Luke puts this in here for a very important reason. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. This is the guy, just a little Bible trivia, he wrote the book of Mark. So when you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's this guy. They call him John Mark, probably not to confuse him with John the Apostle. But John Mark wrote that book, and he's Barnabas' cousin. Now what happens between Acts 13 here and later in Acts 14, and then and we get into Acts 15, is as they're traveling around, it keeps getting hard. It keeps getting hard. It keeps getting hard. Paul and Barnabas, everywhere they go, they're preaching, they're preaching, they're preaching, and it gets really intense. They get stoned and literally beaten and, and imprisoned and all this stuff. And at some point, John Mark abandons them. Literally just heads back for home. He's like, this is too hard. I quit. And Paul and Barnabas move on. And we get to Acts chapter 15. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have gathered in Jerusalem with the apostles. And I don't have time to go into all that story. But when we get to the end of Acts 15, something significant happens between these two great leaders. And I want you to see it. Here we go. Acts chapter 15. Look at verse 36 to 41. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. Huh, who's listed first? Paul. And who is saying, who's setting the direction now? It's not Barnabas anymore, it's who? Paul. Okay, look at the next verse. This gets fascinating here. Barnabas agreed 
And he wanted to take along his cousin, John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly. Since John Mark had deserted them at Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, and as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. Then he traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. Wait a minute. These two great leaders in the church were fighting? No. Why? We honestly don't know much, except for that Paul felt like he couldn't trust John Mark. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. So he's saying, look, God's grace is perfect. God's mercy is perfect. Yes, he messed up. We're not denying the fact that he messed up, but let's not give up on him. Paul, Paul's like, I can't move on with him. I don't trust him. That's the best we can read from that. And so Barnabas says, well, this is who I am. I must be who I am. But Paul says, well, this is who I am. I must be who I am. And they went their own ways. And what's fascinating is going their own ways was probably the will of God. How they got there probably wasn't. Probably the fighting, whatever the sharp disagreement is. I love the way Luke protects that. He doesn't give any more information than is absolutely necessary. He only gives you enough to know they disagreed with each other. It's about John Mark, and then they moved on. But later in Paul's writings, do you know what he says? He says, send me John Mark because he's a blessing to me. Actually, he says, send me Mark because his name had been shortened to just Mark at that point. He says, send me Mark because he's a blessing to me. So what do we know from that? What do we know from that? Well, Barnabas' work with John Mark worked. So Barnabas takes John Mark, he pours into him, he restores a leader who has fallen and failed, and then Paul sees him as a blessing. Even though there's trust lost here, later on Paul has matured, the situation has changed, and he invites him back into the journey with Paul. Now what do we make of all of this? Let's make some quick points. There's going to come a day in your life, you're going to need wisdom, and you're going to need another leader to pour into you. Will you be humble enough to let someone else lead you? Now, the reality is, most of us ask for help after it's too late. I spent roughly three and a half years with a counselor in the early 2000s. I spent numbers of time with friends, older, wiser people, other counselors since then. I'm really messed up. Some of us are less messed up. I'm really messed up. And I'm okay to say that because I don't, I don't boast about anything but Christ and him crucified. I needed help. And sometimes, sometimes there comes a moment in your family or in your parenting or in your leadership where you are stuck. And you think to yourself, I should know how to do this. But the reality is you don't. And every day you wake up and you keep hitting the same wall. And when you finally stop, swallow your pride and acknowledge, I need help. Then you can reach out and find somebody who pours into you. But here's what I know. My, last, my first counselor, he said to me, he said, Matt, by the time most people reach out to me, it's too late. If they had come to me a year before, if they'd come to me months before, before they said all those horrible things to their spouse, before they had done all those really dumb things that I could have helped them avoid doing, we maybe could have saved the situation. But they reached out after. And sometimes the pain is just so great there's no going So my question to you is, will you be humble enough to admit when you need help and then get it? Our our goal, our hope is to be a place where people are transformed by the love of Christ. So we've created ministries and opportunities for you to get the help you need when you need it. 
But it leads to this question. See, if you're going to reach out and ask for help, then somebody has to be available to help, right? So some of you are sitting there going, man, I don't know everything there is to know. I mean, there's only one person in this church who knows everything there is to know. Jesus. You thought I was going to say me, didn't you? My wife could vouch for you that I don't know everything there is to know. And since you don't know everything there is to know, there's only one guy who knows everything there is to know. His name is Jesus. And since that's true, then the pressure is off. You don't have to know everything about everything. In fact, Paul, same guy here, was mentored by Barnabas. You know, he literally says, nobody knows everything. That's Paul. He wrote two-thirds in the New Testament. If anybody knows everything about everything, it's Paul. And he's like, nobody knows everything about everything. So guess what? Pressure's off. All you have to do is step into the role. So maybe some of you are being encouraged, challenged, whatever it is. Let me just give you some really, really, really practical advice now. So here's a question. How do I find someone to mentor? How do I find somebody to pour my life into? How do I make that a reality? Here's a few pieces of advice. Coffee and food are your best friend. Amen? God created coffee for a reason. I'm just saying. If he wanted it to sit on a plant, he wouldn't have made it. So what you do is you just go to somebody, and you don't say this. You don't go to them and say, hey, man, I want to pour into you. Most people are too intimidated by that. I have literally had people take me out for coffee or food, and they were very presumptuous. They assumed they knew something about how to help me, and maybe they were right, but honestly, the conversation so turned me off that I didn't give them the time of day. Never had a follow-up. Because their conversation was like, well, you know what you need to do, or you know what you need to work on, or you know what you, like, that's great. I don't know you. The best way to really find somebody to pour into, honestly, is go to them and repeat those four words. I see in you something great. Can I buy you a coffee? I'd like to just encourage you. Maybe by doing this, God will open doors to conversations that need to be had. The one thing you need to do in that moment, mentor, the one thing you need to do is model humility and grace because there isn't enough of it in the world. Don't share all your successes because you know you've had just as many failures. And you also know when you're really honest, most of your successes came and you didn't even know where they came from. You stumbled on luck. Praise God, because it wasn't luck. It was sovereignty. So don't just share all your successes, how great you are. Share your failures. Be humble enough to say, look, I blew it here, I blew it here, I blew it here. But here's what I learned in those moments, and that humility will open doors. But it brings up another question. Some of you are sitting there going, man, I would love to have a mentor. How do I find a mentor? Do you know I meet more men? And women are really good about asking for help. I meet more men who say to me, I wish I just had somebody to teach me, coach me, pour into me. And men are just so afraid of this relationship. Men are so afraid to step out and be this person or to ask for help. So how do I find somebody to mentor me? Number one, here's step one. You need to clarify the problem. Because you might have 100 problems, but that's too much for any one person to take on. You need to write out in one or two sentences, what is the very question, the very thing, and it needs to be crystal clear. Give it to somebody else you know, your wife, somebody else in your life. Say, look, is this clear? If I were to ask somebody this, is this clear? And then look around. I recommend men find men and women find women. It's the biblical model. It's healthy. It protects your marriage and your heart and your purity. So go to another person of the same gender and say, look, I, I, I see in you. I see in you something amazing. I see in you a healthy marriage. You've been married, what, 25 years, 30 years? Man, I, I want to know how you got there. And when you're in that moment, and finally, take the person to coffee, because it's 
what Jesus would do. When you're in that moment and you're having this conversation with them, be very clear. Here's the one or two things I want to know. You need to respect their time. Look, I just need 30 minutes, 30 minutes. That's it. If you give me that, I promise I'll stick to that. And then you stick to that. And then you write them a thank you note or an email and you follow up and say, hey, thank you for your time. But when you're in that moment, here's the thing. You're not trying to find out what they did because things are constantly changing. The world is changing. Culture is changing. You're not just trying to find out what they did and how they did it. Well, I want you to find out why they did it. Get into their head. Hey, why did you buy your flowers that night? Hey, why did you at the company take that strategic move at that time? I know the strategic move. Why did you do it? Why did you do this? Why did you discipline your kids that way? Why didn't you do it this way? And then just listen. And then if you go back and apply the principles like you should, follow up with them and say, hey, I just want to say thanks because I did this with my spouse, with my kids, in my job, in my small group, and it worked. And imagine a church where everybody was doing that, where younger wives who are struggling in their marriage have older women. They say, I see in you a healthy marriage. How do I get there? you're going to hear stories of pain and struggle and triumph. And where men are able to say, look, I feel like I've hit a lid in my job and I don't know what to do. Can you help coach me? How did you break through this thing in your place? And all of a sudden, men are no longer coming to me and saying, I just need somebody to mentor me. It's just happening by conversation over coffee. Did I say that yet? I'm going to close with this. I'm going to close with this. I want to give you a really fast five-step process to pouring your life into somebody else. I took this from the book Exponential. It's not new information. I just want to give glory, credit where glory is due. Here we go. I do, you watch, we talk. That's step one. I do, you watch, we talk. Let's just use an environment here at the church that we have, and we call it life groups. It's our small group environment. So you go to another person and say, look, would you, would you, um, would you come alongside me in this group? And what happens is you just lead the group. You do everything. They watch you, and then you go to coffee or food. If you don't like coffee, we'll pray for you. Step two. Step two, you invite them into the process. So I do, you help, we talk. So step one, I'm still doing it, but I might give you a piece of the process. Hey, would you contact everybody and just remind them a group is coming up? Hey, would you take the prayer time at the end of our meeting today? Hey, would you make sure XYZ is set up? See, at this step, you're doing it all, but at this step, you're starting to give them the little pieces, not the major pieces, the little pieces. You get to step three, and it looks like this. You do, I help, we talk. So now it's, hey, I'm going to lead the prayer time. I'm going to make sure everybody shows up. I'm going to set up the room, but I'm going to have you teach the lesson. Do you know that you will never, ever, ever embrace the gospel like when you have to give it away? The first time you have to teach somebody else what somebody else has taught you, that's amazing. All of a sudden it becomes real. Because you have to start wrestling with questions you didn't know about. You didn't even think about it. You're like, ah, what do I do with this? And people start asking you stuff. And all those fears raise the surface. You know what? Fear is a really good thing when it motivates you to find answers. So you do. I help. We talk. You follow up. Hey, how'd you think that went? You think that bombed, huh? How much time did you put into that? 20 minutes? Right before? Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. You could do better. I see in you the potential to do better. Step four, we're almost done. You do, I watch, we talk. So now you're leading the group. I'm not even engaged anymore. I'm just there. And we go out and we drink coffee. Hey, how did it go? At this stage, the leader, when the now the Paul, you may be literally watching them do what you've done with somebody else. They may be pouring into another person. And then that leads us naturally to step five. 
we have a sharp disagreement over John Mark. Not exactly. But you do, and someone else watches. So at step five, between here and here, I've removed myself from the place where I'm mentoring you, and you're just simply doing it for someone else. I get to tell you this story from this past week on Easter. I hope you're here to hear it. But after I hung up the phone with my pastor, I got a text from the family about the story. And um, I sent a text to my pastor, just said, thanks, X, Y, Z just happened, and you just have to wait for the suspense till next week. And uh, he wrote me back, and he said, great job, Matt. I'm so proud of you. Because now I'm here leading a church, which is what I watched him do for 10 years. And what you do now is you multiply leadership. There's a lot of you out there who need help. You need coaching, you need mentoring, you need a friend. Will you be humble enough to ask for it? And there's a lot of you out there who have something to offer, and you're so, you're so beat up by the world that you don't think you have anything to offer, or you're so arrogant you think you have everything to offer. If all of us would approach this in humility, humility, what might God do to repair marriages, advance leadership, make stronger students for tomorrow through teachers, what might happen in our church if 2,000 people engaged in our community left here and practiced this? I can only imagine. What I want to do right now is pray for you. While we take communion, look, I want to pray specifically that God would either raise you up to be the mentor you're called to be or would, or would humble you enough to get you the person that you can reach out to. Our people leaving the room right now, they're going to go serve communion to you. They're going to practice what Jesus says. And uh, while I pray, I'm going to ask God to bring a name to mind, a name to mind, somebody you could pour into or somebody who could pour into you. Let's pray. Father God, right now, would you uh, bring a name, literally a name, person of the same gender, God, there can't be any hidden impure motives here. This can't be about trying to uh, date somebody else or get together with somebody who's not our spouse. God, this has to be pure. It has to be honest. God, would you bring literally a name right now? If we need help in our marriages, God, would you bring a couple to mind, somebody that we can reach out to? And God, I pray if there truly is a marriage in here that's struggling, would you bring the same name to mind for both the husband and the wife that they might reach out and get help? And God, I pray in this room for men and women who aren't perfect because none of us is perfect, who don't know everything because none of us know everything, but just men and women who love you, who want to pour out what you've poured into them. And God, I pray that you would give them wisdom wisdom, humility to step into the role of mentor because so many of us desperately, desperately need it. And God, through this, we pray that your church would grow and be healthy. In Jesus' name, amen.